0: Today on Yap, we're pulling from the Young and Profiting archives and resurfacing my eye-opening conversation with billionaire Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square and author of The Innovation Stack. Tune in to hear the story of how Jim met Jack Dorsey as a 15-year-old intern who, fast forward to today, is the CEO of both Twitter and Square, and learn how Jack stood out to Jim as a young worker with extraordinary potential. Jim goes on to tell us why you don't need to be a natural-born leader or even like leadership to become an entrepreneur, and we hear the not-talked-about-enough perspective of how we can win big in business without ever having to be a CEO. Lastly, we get the inside scoop of how Square's innovation stack helped them compete against Amazon when the e-commerce giant tried to put them out of business and replicate their payment processing model. If you want to learn how to build an unbeatable business and rock entrepreneurship without ever having to be the CEO, then Yap fam, I advise you to get out your notepad and keep on listening. So my first question is taking it way back. I've listened to a lot of different interviews that you've been on, and I know that they usually start off with talking about how you met Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, and how you guys started off with Square, but I'm looking to take it way back. I know that your mother suddenly passed away back in December 1989, and my father actually passed away about a month ago. And I know how difficult that can be, but also how motivating that can be when somebody really close to you passes away. So help me understand like who you were as a person prior to your mother passing and the type of changes that went on both mentally and physically after she, she passed away and helping you to become the person that you are today.
1: Wow, so mom died very suddenly, it was suicide and it was not something that we were expecting. And uh, it really blew my world up because up until that point, I had lived in a very, very isolated world. There were no real problems. My dad was a professor, so we never, you know, we were never rich, but we were never worried about money. And a lot of the world's problems seemed to not bother us. And when mom got ill, we thought that sending to a psychiatrist would make it all go away. And, uh, and she led us to believe this. Like my mother was very, very tough and she didn't tell us how bad she was feeling. Cause she didn't, I don't know why, but the bottom line is her suicide really knocked me over. And at the moment when it happened, I realized that I was actually mediocre in everything that I did. So I, I had three jobs at the time. I had a, I had my own company that was making a Uh, storage cabinets for compact discs and uh, basically stereo cabinetry. So that business was going pretty well. I was actually working full-time for IBM at the time, but I was working in the Los Angeles office. So I didn't have to actually physically go into the office. I was one of the first remote workers. So, um, and then I I was a glass blower. So I had a glass studio that, uh, that I was working at and I would basically blow glass during the day, do my IBM consulting at night, and then run this other company in the sort of interstitial moments. And then mom died and I realized that I was mediocre at everything. Like my company wasn't that good and I wasn't a very good IBM employee and I was a mediocre glassblower. So I decided the day my mom died that I would focus on something. Mm. And so that was Mira, the company that actually I still own. I'm in their office right now, but started Mira basically the night mom died and I quit IBM and I for a time stopped blowing glass and then I stopped. I basically got rid of my company. So I put it all into this little software company, which then, well, didn't make any money for the next five years. So I went five years without an income.
0: Wow, that's so cool that, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened and I, and I didn't realize how traumatic it was. So I'm sorry that I brought it up right away.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you're a tough interview, you know? <laughs> <laughs> This is good. I mean it's good content, I guess. But it was like I've I've never I've never had an interview start off with bomb suicide, like ever. That was (laughs) phenomenal.
0: Yeah, well, there's a silver lining in all of this, and that's the fact that her death kind of was a wake-up call for you to not be mediocre. And I did want to share that lesson with my listeners. The fact that you don't have to wait until somebody passes away in your family to kind of get that fire under you. But a lot of the times, like, those situations do bring out a lot of drive and motivation. For example, like I said, my father died from coronavirus last month.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, it was wow. really
0: bad. For me, I feel like I can take over the world and, like, I have all this passion because I just want to make him proud. And I know that other yeah. other people have had similar situations like that. So, also, um, during my research, I found out that you were uh, quite a nerd growing up.
1: And Still you- am. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it does. You don't grow out of that. At least I didn't.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so you didn't really fit in as a child. And you decided very early on that you weren't going to care if you fit in or not. And I think that probably helped you as well as hurt you later on in life. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: So it, it wasn't so much that I wasn't going to care. It was that at some point I couldn't do anything about it. So caring too much, wasn't going to help anything. It wasn't like I was this stoic guy that says, I don't care what other people think. No, no, I really care what other people think. But at some point, it doesn't do any good. So at some point, the rational part of my brain just said, look, you got to proceed whether or not people are pissed off at you or think you're an idiot. or I mean, so I've been called a lot of names. And at some point, I just gave up putting any energy into it. But I guess I still care. Uh, I just don't do anything about it. But yeah, it was a It was a big wake-up call because what I became was this thing called an entrepreneur. And at the time, people weren't calling people entrepreneurs. It's it's, entrepreneurship is this is this sort of popular term these days. But when I started doing it, it wasn't very popular, and people thought it was weird to start your own company, and they thought it was stupid if you didn't go to work for a big company. So it was good to have that thick skin. And I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, don't care what other people think." Like that's not a good. Piece of advice, because most people can't do that. But what I would say is, don't care too much what other people think. And you know, if you can get away from a lot of the social dopamine drips that you get from trying to get followers or uh, likes or things like that, that that may help.
0: Yeah, and I believe you don't use any social media at all. Is that true?
1: I don't. So it turns out I, I wrote a book and my book publicity team has set up Facebook and Instagram accounts and, and then Twitter, of course, because Jack started the company. But I don't use it. If, if you connect with me on one of the social accounts, it's not me, it's my team that's to sell books. And I, I have to say, I don't have anything against social media, but I don't choose to use it personally. I feel the same way about drugs. Like I don't use drugs. <laughs> I got nothing against drugs. If you want to use drugs, we can still be great friends. A lot of my friends, you know, use a lot of drugs. I just don't do it because to me, drugs are probably not something I should be using. And yeah. I feel the same way about Facebook.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy because you are a multi-billionaire. You know, we haven't had many billionaires on the podcast. The last billionaire I had on the podcast was Naveen Jain, like 40 episodes ago. And, maybe there's something to it. Like having a laser focus, not getting distracted by trying to impress people in this fake
1: virtual world. But, but Hala, I don't have a laser focus. Like I do six different things. Like I'm on the Fed. I'm going to go into the glass blowing studio today. I'm going to spend an afternoon blowing glass. I, I wrote this book. Yeah. You know, I do work with Square. I got another company. Like I, like focus is not one of the words you would use mm. <laughs> to describe me. But, but I will tell you this, having a surplus of time is very valuable. Yeah. So I'm one of these people that I think if I got into social media, it would be probably the same way if I got into drugs, is like I'd probably use too many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'd probably be really concerned about what people think or uh, trying to be clever or trying to look cool or trying to be accepted. Like I, I think the sort of weaker parts of my personality would dominate and I would just get sucked in. And so I've explicitly eliminated that. I also don't play video games and I know that's uncool too, but <laughs> to me, I would rather spend time talking to people or, or working or, or hanging out with folks in real life. I, I mean, even if it's, you know, these days over video chat.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, that makes total sense. I'm kind of similar. Like, I don't watch any TV, you know? I just don't because I'd rather, you know, work on my podcast. I have a full-time job aside yeah. from just working on my podcast. So you have to choose where you spend your time. And like you said, social media might not be a great use of your time.
1: Well, I mean, I'll, let me phrase yeah. that a different way. Yeah. You, you have to choose where you spend your time, but you should choose where you don't spend your time. Mm. Okay. In other words, and and this is a different way of looking at the equation. Like most people say, well, I should do more of this. Like I should learn how to play the piano. Well, where's that time going to come from? And I was taught years ago um, a trick by Jim Collins who told me to have a don't do list. And the don't do list is this. I mean, it was life-changing for me because I got rid of all sorts of things that I shouldn't be doing. And this was pre-social media. So social media wasn't even an option. But I got rid of my TV. I don't watch news.
0: Yeah. Especially with everything going on now, you still don't watch news?
1: I don't watch news. I mean, look, I know what's going on. I know about Black Lives Matter. I'm going to marches, and I'm actually heading to the NAACP office. And NAACP is my neighbor <laughs> in, uh, at launch code, So I'm, I'm going to go into their office and do some things to hopefully help them today. But I don't know. I haven't seen the videos. I, I, and, and it's not because I'm trying to avoid it. It's just that because the news cycle is, is tremendously draining if I get little snippets of news here and there, that's enough. I, now I do read, but I read typically weekly publications. So I don't get the daily hammering of stuff because it's like, I just get too depressed. Like if I if I soaked in all the news right now, I probably couldn't leave this room.
0: Yeah. I wasn't paying attention to news for a really long time and until coronavirus happened. And then I just became like obsessed with it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like, so, so a great example of coronavirus, like I learned everything I could about coronavirus and then I kept watching the news and everything in the news was stuff that I already had learned. So I went to the scientists, I work with Washington University's medical school. I'm actually funding some research to try to get us a vaccine and more importantly, to try to get us uh, some testing. So I'm deeply involved in this, but I'm not learning stuff on a daily basis that's new. And if I get a piece of information two or three hours or two or three days after somebody else does, I still get it. People call me all the time and tell me stuff that they think is important. That's how I get my information.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So I want to move on to the topic of entrepreneurship, and I want to talk about your book, Innovation Stack. So from my understanding, you prefer to build completely new markets. You like to do things that have never been done before rather than copying a proven solution. You call this being a true entrepreneur. Could you define what an entrepreneur means to you? Because I know you have a very specific definition.
1: Yes. So the word entrepreneur was first popularized a century ago by an economist who needed a word to describe somebody who was doing something different. And that's different from business. So you can be very successful in business and basically do what somebody else has already done. So my friend Howard owns a bunch of coffee shops. He's made millions of dollars. And coffee shops have been done before. He opened a really successful coffee shop, but there wasn't anything really that different about his coffee shops versus all the other coffee shops and he would be a very successful business person in history we needed a word to differentiate people who did something different from people who were doing stuff that had already been done And so that word was entrepreneur. Now in the last hundred years, the the definition has morphed to mean anybody in business. So if you start a coffee shop, we call you an entrepreneur today, but I don't use that definition. I use the archaic definition because I need a way to differentiate doing new things with copying. And by the way, I don't have anything against copying. I always try to copy right now. I'm, I'm in the studio. I'm designing a piece of glass and I am trying to steal everybody else's techniques. Like I am trying desperately to find a way to make this shape through copying other people. And I've, I keep failing because nobody's ever done this thing before. So I'm going to have to go invent. And, but invention is a last resort. But the problem is most people don't even have a word to describe somebody in business who does something new because the word entrepreneur these days doesn't mean that. It means just anybody in business. So the reason I wrote this book was because I stumbled upon this super powerful concept that allows Square to become you know, a multi, multi-billion dollar company that allowed us to survive an attack by Amazon and allowed us to do all these really, really powerful things. And then I noticed that we weren't the only company that had done this, that there was actually hundreds of companies throughout history that had exactly the same experience. And I was like, oh my God, one of the things that these companies all had in common was that they didn't begin by copying another business. They began by creating a new market. And that's super powerful. And if your listeners wanted to do something to change the world, I think there's more powerful in creating new than in copying what's already been done.
0: Well, to your point that you can get super successful if you create something completely new. I think you can reach new heights in terms of success. But what is the pros of copying someone? You know, uh, I think it's, it's less oh. risky. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So copying is great. Like you should always try to copy. So what I talk about in the book is this idea of the perfect problem. This idea that some problems are unsolved and some problems are unsolved and unsolvable. But If it's solvable, but it hasn't been done yet, that's a perfect target area. And if you do something in that area, you will almost certainly be very, very successful. That said, I don't want a bunch of people running out there and saying, well, McKelvey said don't copy, so I'm just gonna like reinvent the chair. No, chairs work. Like I'm sitting in a chair right now. This chair is great. And I would not have any time at all if I had to reinvent everything every day. So yeah, absolutely, copy. Like, and if you, by the way, if you just wanna make a bunch of money don't be an entrepreneur. Just be a business person. Find a business that works. Copy what everybody else is doing. You can go to a trade show. The trade show can teach you what you don't know. You can hire a consultant if you don't like it's. It's a formula. And all you have to do is work the formula. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in solving problems that the world has not figured out yet. And you can't copy the solution the first time. And that's the thing. We are such a copy-centric world. All of school is copy, basically your entire schooling experience, up through a PhD. Because even if you do a PhD, which is supposed to be original research, like you're really supposed to copy the way other people have done original research. Like it's just just a formula. And run that formula, that formula works, but it's not going to solve a new problem. And that's what I want to do. And so that's why I wrote this book. And then in the process, I discovered that it was resonating with people who also – Felt frustrated that they didn't have the right tools that they could copy to solve all the problems they wanted to solve.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and Profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey, to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to Hey, App Fam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full-time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow Grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle, you've always dreamed of. If you want to start that business, you can't stop thinking about. If you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. So you mentioned the concept of the perfect problem. So I know that you've founded several companies, Square, Invisibly, LaunchCode. What are the problems that you're trying to solve with those companies?
1: Well, I mean, in Square, it was a question of getting small merchants paid. So the, I was a small merchant. I wanted to be able to take credit cards. So that was the original problem that we solved. Invisibly is trying to solve the problem of people's identity online. Basically, you don't have a voice in how your content is created if it's advertising supported because an ad doesn't allow you to pay more for something that you like and less for something you hate. So in other words, if I steal 20 seconds of your time and piss you off, I'm still going to make the same amount of money as if I give you 20 seconds of pure joy. And you'd rather be able to pay more for 20 seconds of pure joy, but there's no mechanism for doing that online. And the reason – one of the reasons that you know, we're losing journalism and we're losing news and we're losing great content is because these economic models are broken. So that's what Invisibly does. And then Launch code. LaunchCode was a, an attempt to basically allow people to become programmers for free because I knew we had this worldwide shortage of programmers. And I thought, well, the best way to get somebody to do something is to give them something great for free. So at Launch Code, we give you a world class education in six months that gets you a job. And there's no charge for that. And because it's free to everybody, we have thousands of people now that have gotten free training and real world jobs as programmers. And it is life changing. Launch Code, I mean, Square's kind of a big deal, but Launch Code is probably more impactful on daily human lives because you're talking about people who were half of them were unemployed and probably other half of them the average salary with people start launch code was 17,000 and when they finish the program it's 55,000. So we're taking people 3x their salary and I mean it's just life changing. So yeah, I do stuff like that.
0: That's amazing. That must be so rewarding. So I think a lot of my listeners, they want to start companies, they want to start businesses, but they don't have the ideas. They're unable to find the the best business ideas. So how do you become more aware and alert to the perfect problems that are out there?
1: So what I recommend is that people find something that appeals to them. Here's the problem, Hala. Entrepreneurship in its current definition, this just start a business. It's like starting a business ship is super popular. It's cool these days. And because it's cool, a lot of people are going into it just because that's the way they want to make money. And in those cases, I think those people would be well served by just copying an existing business. Find something that's working in Cincinnati and move it to Des Moines uh, or find something that works in San Francisco and copy it in New York. That's a good formula for making money. I am not the right guy to talk to about that stuff. I believe if you wanna be an entrepreneur, you're probably not gonna succeed. But if you succeed, your success will be 100 or 1,000x what a normal business person would be. Think about the problems that you're gonna encounter and understand that money is a very weak motivator. The difference between being a middle-class person in the United States and being a billionaire Uh is not that great. And I'm just telling you, like, there's not anything really that money makes that much of a difference. Like if you get if you if you're basically in the middle class, it doesn't get much better than that. You know, you're still gonna sleep indoors, you're still gonna have Netflix, you're still gonna have like just all the stuff is pretty much the same. Like maybe you'll have a fancier car, but you know what? Who cares? Maybe you'll fly in a private plane as opposed to a regular plane, and you know what? Who cares? Just, there's no big difference. So, money's a very weak motivator if you get into real problems. So, pick a problem you care about. So, I'm not interested in talking to people who want to start a business. I want to start a business. Well, I don't care. But somebody who comes to me and says, hey, Jim, I want to fix this problem that I care deeply about. So, look, I mean, just look out your window. Look at, look at the issues we have in society, okay? they are terrible problems going on right now. I spend every morning working out with a guy. He's a 76-year-old African American. Like he was been he'd been through the civil rights movement. He's been through all these situations. Like he and I talk every morning for an hour and a half about what's going on. And he's telling me all these things that there should be solutions for. Now, are those going to be good businesses? Well, some of them will be. Some of them will be great businesses because what what I talk about in the innovation stack is the massive power of serving the unserved. And that's different than most people when they think about opportunity. You know, there's like, oh, well, I'll make this product that rich people will buy. Well, there aren't a lot of rich people. But if you make a product that every person can buy, well, that's amazing. So one of my projects right now is I'm trying to figure out a way to make a five-cent diaper. You know, diapers cost 25 cents. Poor women can't afford it. Poverty starts a lot of times when a young mother can't afford diapers for her kid. And then, then horrible stuff happens because the kid can't go to preschool or the mother can't hold on a job. Like it's, it's, if you look at where poverty starts, that's one of the places. And I'm like, why is the world paying 25 cents for a diaper? I think we could do it for five. Now, can I, can I build a five cent diaper? Absolutely not. Will I ever be able to? I don't know. I'm literally investing in investigating, uh, you know, hyperabsorbent materials right now because that's a problem that I care about. If you don't care about that, don't work on it, but find a problem you care about.
0: So you just gave a great example, this diaper issue that you're working on. You're certainly not a diaper expert, right?
1: My, my two-year-old daughter would differ with you, but yes.
0: <laughs> I'm not,
1: no, I'm not a diaper expert. I don't know anything about diapers, except I'm a user.
0: Yeah. So how do you deal with all that uncertainty? Like, How do you get comfortable with uncertainty going into a problem that you don't know if, if you can solve? How do you get past that?
1: So, the answer is, and again, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book because I wanted people to know what it was like firsthand to feel that you're not going to get over it. There is no trick to getting over the uncertainty. There will, if you are doing something that has never been done in human history before, you are going to feel really weird. You're going to feel alone. You're going to feel scared. Probably your friends who love you will tell you that you're stupid. And not because they want to criticize you, but they'll say they'll say, "Hala, don't do that."
0: Yeah, it's because they care about you, most likely. (laughs) They
1: care about you, and and they are looking at a world of copies, saying, "Well, what she's doing, I've never seen before. So therefore, it's never going to work." And you know, don't get in that flying machine. And I say, yeah, most of the early flying machines killed their operators, but then the Wright brothers got it right, and we have the airplane now. And think about. Orville and Wilbur Wright being the first pilots because neither one of them were qualified to be a pilot. I mean, nobody had ever flown a plane before. Like, how could they be qualified? So I think you're not – and this is, this is the thing that, that pisses me off. People expect these sort of simple answers. Oh, here's a way to not be afraid. <laughs> no, you probably are going to be afraid. Here's a way to not be scared. No, like I'm scared. I've done it 20 times. And I still, every time I have to do something new, I get scared. But the difference is if you're <laughs> expecting that, you're better prepared to handle it. So analogy I use in the book, it's a difference between being an, an adventurer and being, or I should say an explorer, or being a tourist, like if I'm going to go be a tourist, I expect to sleep indoors and have room service. Like I just – I've got this sort of tourist thing. Now, if I'm planning to go visit some place that I've never been before, and it turns out that that place has been unexplored in human history, and I get off whatever the vehicle that drops me there, and like I'm in a jungle, and I've brought my laptop and a Visa card, I'm probably going to die, okay? But if I know I'm going to be dropped off in a jungle – well, I'll probably bring flashlights, band-aids, a machete. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pack for the trip. So if you're going to be an entrepreneur, at least you should know how to pack for the trip.
0: <laughs> I love that analogy. So when I was doing my research and studying, I found out that you don't consider yourself to be a good leader. And that's very different than a lot of the people that I've interviewed in the past you you never really take the CEO role you know Jack Dorsey is the CEO of square you're really quick to give up that role um, when somebody competent comes along so help us understand how did you realize that like you weren't a good leader you weren't a good manager what made you decide that I'm not going to be a CEO for any companies that I well found? so
1: I tried it for a while and it was one of these things like accounting which I can do accounting I like I know how to do accounting but I'm not a natural good accountant I'm not that sort of person. And I could force myself to do this thing that was unnatural for me and I would do it poorly. And then I met somebody who was a great accountant and he loves it and he's just phenomenal. And I was like, wow, I can like pay you to do this thing that I'm not very good at and shouldn't be doing probably anyway. And that just was this light bulb that went on my head. And then I looked at the other things that I was doing. It's like, wait a second, I'm actually not very good at running these meetings and I don't really enjoy measuring the weekly progress of the teams. And I, I don't enjoy, you know, motivational retreats and all this. I mean, it's just like, ah, I, I wasn't very good. So so I realized pretty early on that I was I was sort of a terrible leader, but I still wanted to solve these problems and I still wanted to start companies. And then I realized that, wait a second, there are people who who are great leaders who love that. So why not work with them? So, you know, like when Jack and I started Square, there was like this you know, there's that awkward discussion. You know, like two people start a company. Like, who's going to be the boss? We had, we had <laughs> zero questions. It's like, I was like, well, I don't want to be the boss. And Jack's like, I want to be the boss. I was like, great, you're the boss. I mean, <laughs> that was it. That's it amazing. took like a minute and a half. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that Jack's the boss. He's, he's doing way better than I would have.
0: So uh, since you brought up Jack, let's talk about how you guys met. I think it's a really unique story.
1: Uh, So I hired Jack when he was 15 years old. His mother owned a coffee shop and he was this little kid who loved working with computers and came into our office and we put him to work and he pulled an all-nighter with us on his first day at the office. So we ended up becoming friends after that. I mean, sort of work friends, but he, even as a 15-year-old, was incredibly competent. So I kept giving him bigger, bigger assignments. And after a while, we did a special project, just him and me, which turned out to save the company. Mm. And so uh, Jack and I stayed friends. Not, you know, I wouldn't see him every year because he moved out of town for a while. But uh, after they kicked him out of Twitter, he came back to St. Louis and we caught up again. And he suggested that we started another company together. He invited me to start a company with him. I thought, well, that's cool. What do you want to do? And he was like, I thought you had an idea. I was like, I don't have anything. So, <laughs> so that's kind of what we started.
0: Yeah. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned with your relationship. So he started out as your intern. You were still young. I think you were like 25 or 26. Yeah. About when he 26,
1: your... yeah and he was 15.
0: Yeah. So you were still young, but you were more experienced than he was. How was it, um, you know, becoming kind of business partners with somebody who was so much younger and less experienced than you at the time? Like, how did you trust him? And did you learn anything from that?
1: So it turns out that, There is a huge age bias in this country. So at at LaunchCode, we place a lot of people and we place programmers. I placed a programmer six months ago who was uh, in his 70s. 70-year-old programmer, like a programmer. The number one bias in programming is not gender or race. It is, in fact, age. And if you are prejudiced, which I guess to some extent we're all prejudiced a little bit, but if you see people of color or a certain gender or a certain age, and you say they can't do this job, then you're really limiting yourself and those people. So to me, the fact that somebody is really young, like 15 years old, doesn't mean that he or she can't manage a team, do great work. So I I don't know, like it's like, I just never saw Jack as a 15 year old. Like he was just somebody who I'd give him a task and he'd do the task right. So I gave him more tasks and after a while, I gave him too many tasks that he couldn't do them all, so I started hiring people to work for the 15-year-old. Now, the people I was hiring was in their 30s, so you know they were basically working for somebody who came to work on his bicycle, but he was still their boss, and I made sure they knew he was their boss, and Jack did a great job. So you got to get over this idea. Don't prejudge. So what if they're 15? So, what if they look a certain way? You just, I mean, but that's so baked into everything we do that I think, look, there's phenomenal talent out there. This is, the, okay, so you want a trick? Here's a trick go where the people ain't. If everybody's got a problem hiring women programmers, which statistically they do, for some reason that bias still exists, which is insane. Wow, that means that you, if you can hire women programmers, will get better programmers just so simple. Like We're seeing right now that there are huge biases in society. Well, that doesn't mean there isn't talent. It just means that the talented people don't get the same opportunities. Well, if you can give them the opportunities, well, you'll get better talent. I mean, it's good for everybody. So just get over whatever the bias is. Try to accept the fact that your, your new programmer may be a 65-year-old black female. Oh, and by the way, if you need one, I've got a few that will crush you you know, <laughs> on JavaScript, like with the launch code, like we let everybody in and some of our people defy the stereotypes. And I love it.
0: Yeah. I think it's a really important topic to discuss. Like there's ageism and it's goes both ways, whether it's young or old, yeah. uh, people just have their prejudices. So um, something I was, I was looking at the news today, unlike you, and I saw that Twitter and Square will make Juneteenth, um, which commemorates the end of slavery on June 19th, 1865. It's going to be a permanent company holiday. So I thought that was really cool.
1: That is really cool. And thank you for telling me that. <laughs> I, I did you didn't not.
0: know? <laughs> it just no, happened honestly, yesterday I, they announced it.
1: I don't read the news on a daily basis. Yeah. And I have to say, I haven't checked my square email in three days. So Yeah. I get hundreds and hundreds of pieces of email so that...
0: Yeah. Well, do you know um, what Square is doing in relation to supporting Black Lives Matter and and anything with their, you know, inclusion and diversity plans and how they're doing there?
1: Look, I, I, I would say this. There's sort of two general things that we can do as corporate citizens. One is treat our employees really, really well. Try to quash biases. And, and look, we all have biases. Like I got caught the other day on something that I, it was a, it was a bias that I had and somebody pointed it out to me and I was so embarrassed. Like I couldn't even, like, I felt terrible for about a week. Somebody caught me on something and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I would say that. But I, I, I it was this thing that was just sort of, it was sort of in there and, and somebody exposed it. So, so we try to be good, good citizens that way. But the second thing we could do, and, and I think Square's done a wonderful job of this, is build tools that connect people and payments and allowing small businesses and small individuals. Like if you're using Cash App, Cash App is phenomenal and it connects people and people who don't have access to the tools that middle-class Americans have. We're making those tools more available and we do it for small businesses and we now do it for individuals through Cash App. And I think those things are just great for society.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's go back to you and Jack starting off Square. So you guys had very little financial experience. How did you turn your lack of knowledge in the financial space into an advantage when starting Square?
1: So this is the process that I outline in great detail in the innovation stack. And it's super, super powerful because this is the formula that essentially unlocks the power of these world-changing companies. And we stumbled upon it. It was sort of accidental. And actually, a lot of world-changing companies sort of stumble upon the same formula. Very simple. You try to serve somebody who has been excluded from a market. You take a group that wants to do something, but can't. In our cases, it was merchants who wanted to take credit cards, but couldn't. In Southwest Airlines' case, it was people who wanted to travel in the air, not on buses, but couldn't afford to. Well, I mean, there are hundreds of examples. I won't bore you with them. But you start with that premise. And even though you don't know anything about it, and this is where entrepreneurship comes in, if you are doing something where there is the potential for expertise – then you are almost always going to get your ass kicked by an expert. So if I want to go out today and fly an airplane, I will probably kill myself. But if I don't, I will certainly not fly it as well as a trained pilot. But if you are trying to fly the world's first airplane, where there are no pilots in the world, then you can have an even playing field. So so Jack and I knew nothing about payments. So we went into a world where nobody else did either because we were building payments and credit card processing for this group that was completely unserved. And because the group was completely unserved, our total ignorance was not as big a disadvantage as it would have been in a known market. So, and, and this is, I mean, like, Hal, this is so important for your, your listeners to understand. There are no experts at new things. Like right now, are there any experts in world economic shutdown? No. And I'm on the Federal Reserve. Like I talked to the world's best economists and we don't have any expertise because we've never done this before. We haven't shut down the world's economy before. Well, okay. So now six months from now, we'll have some experts because they've all lived through it. Okay. But if you're doing something for the first time, it's like magically the playing field levels out. So the playing field is so steeply against you in a world of businesses copying. But all of a sudden, once you get past where the market ends, the playing field becomes perfectly level. So the fact that Jack and I knew nothing about payments didn't hurt us because nobody else knew anything about this type of payments because it didn't exist. We invented a new market and then we kept most of it to ourselves.
0: That's super, super interesting and very eye-opening. So when Square was taking off, Amazon launched a similar product. It worked better, according to you. They marketed it very aggressively. They undercut the price by 30%. From my understanding, you were trying to figure out why you were able to compete successfully against Amazon when so many other companies have failed, and that's how you discovered the innovation stack. So can you explain to us what the innovation stack is, like your definition of it, and then also what your innovation stack was that helped you compete successfully against Amazon?
1: Yes. So the odds of surviving an Amazon attack are basically zero. If Amazon takes your startup, copies your product, undercuts your price, and adds the Amazon brand, you die. And that happens, well, basically 100% of the time, except in Square's case. (laughs) And when we survived, I was happy that we had survived, but I couldn't explain why. And so, as somebody who was raised by a scientist... I got obsessed with answering the question, why did, like, why was Square the one person spared? It's sort of like one of these guys that falls out of an airplane. Like, there have been cases of people who have literally fallen out of airplanes and their parachutes don't open and they live, right? <laughs> and i like, well, what did they do differently? And the answer is, if you're in that person, if you're, if you're in that situation, you, at least I became obsessed with it. So it turns out that Square had this thing, which I now call an innovation stack, which is the thing that protects you. And an innovation stack is this thing that you build in response to a harsh environment where you have to invent new things. So this is why entrepreneurship is so important, because entrepreneurs, by my definition, the archaic definition, do new things. And if you do new things and you can't copy, then the process you go through is fundamentally different. So what Square did, because we were trying to serve merchants who were totally out of the system, we couldn't just copy what all the banks were doing, because the banks had systems to exclude these people. So we had to invent new underwriting, new hardware, new terms of service, new customer support, new software, new settlement rails. Like we did 14 things that were different. And these 14 things, if you add them up, form what I call an innovation stack. And it turns out that if you build an innovation stack, you end up with this thing that at least in all the cases that I've studied, ends up dominating the market. So whenever I found a company with an innovation stack, that company also always became the biggest in their market, biggest furniture store in the world. IKEA, innovation stack, biggest airline in the United States, Southwest, innovation stack. And this is many times in the case of, in the face of ruthless competition. So how does a little startup survive Amazon? Amazon. Innovation stack, and by the way, Amazon. I, I, I got I to give them a plug here. When Amazon quit, they mailed all their customers a Square Reader. They were really that must cool have felt about so
0: good. <laughs> they were
1: really cool about it. Like I have to, I have to praise Amazon here, even though you know I sort of tease them a little bit. But they were really classy in the way they sort of got out of the fight. So you know, hats off to Amazon. But look, I want people to have this power because this is the power that brings society forward. Like, If you're fixing stuff that's already been fixed, that's useful. But if you're inventing the new fixes to problems that nobody else has solved before, that's super useful. And nobody gives you a handbook on that because, well, I mean, we don't even have words to describe it.
0: So your book, Innovation Stack, has excellent reviews. I would recommend everybody to go out and get a copy. It's really fun, it's really engaging. I heard that you rewrote that book eight times. Yes. While Square just took like three weeks to launch or three weeks for you to design that product. So help us understand like why you wrote it so many times and, and if that was like a very difficult thing for you to do.
1: So when I answered my question, when I figured out why Square survived the Amazon attack, I did all this research and I found most of my research in history. And so the problem with historical research, Hala, is that, You can delude yourself into thinking you're right, but you've just cherry-picked examples. So if you want to prove any example, just pick the right subjects and it'll always work, right? I can prove any drug works if you let me pick the people that I get to use it on, right? (laughs) So I had all this historical example and I thought, well, this is no good. I need to speak to somebody who's still alive because most of the people I studied were dead. But I was able to meet Herb Kelleher, who was a legendary founder of Southwest Airlines. So I took all my research to Herb. And I said, Mr. Kelleher, am I right? Like, is, is, is this phenomenon that I think I live through the way you see it? And he's like, yes. He's like, this is, this is an incredible thing. You need to do something about it. So what Herb did was he basically said, get out there and tell the world. Herb Kelleher basically told me to write this book. And I was so excited because Herb is a legend, or was a legend, he unfortunately died, that I was so excited that I decided to write a graphic novel because I thought biz- business books, by the way, suck. They're boring. They will put you to sleep. Like, if you could dist- like, like, listen to one if you have insomnia problems. They're terrible. Even like the bestsellers, they're just poorly written. So I was like, I'm not going to write one of these. So I wrote a comic book. And I called up Herb, and I was super excited. And I said, Herb, you're not going to believe this. It's taken me a year, but I've written this as a graphic novel. And he was really disappointed because he thought that was trivializing this very important subject and he thought all that research that i done he just he just didn't see it so herb said look jim i can't stop you from doing that but i can't tell you to leave me out of it and i was like well i'm not gonna leave herb kelleher out of this story so i rewrote the thing again as like half graphic novel and then half regular book and then uh that's what I sent to the publisher. That was draft number six. Sent that to the publisher. And the publisher said, well, you can't have this schizophrenic book that's like graphic novel and then back to text and then graphic novel and then back to text because that's not going to work on e-readers or audiobooks or anything like that. So my, my publisher basically said, look, you got a great book, but just rewrite the thing as a book. But they did let me keep a really dirty joke in there. I don't know if you caught it. Um, but <clears throat> but they, they really they really let me – I mean, so – Yes, it's a business book, but it reads more like a, like what I wanted, which is stories. Like there's a burning city, there's murder, there's, I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff that blows up because, look, entrepreneurship is actually really good theater because a lot of the times when you're doing something new, there are disasters and disasters and disasters, and disasters are great stories. Like you don't want a story of a nice, normal, functioning nuclear family. That's just boring. Like you want somebody who's a space alien.
0: So like he said, it's a very fun, engaging book. Make sure you go out and get it. The last question that we ask all of our guests is what is your secret to profiting in life? And that can be financial or personal.
1: I would say my secret, which I've already sort of shared is create space. So don't fill, leave some room in your garage for that extra tool you might acquire. Leave some time in your day for some joy or f- to talk to a stranger, leave some space in your head by not filling it with you know, stuff that, that'll suck you up. I mean, like I, it's not that I don't want to know the news, it's that I can't know the news. If I, if I know all the news, all the creative thoughts get sort of like stomped to death by whatever sort of headline I just ingested. So space is, it's so easy to fill space up right now We've got all these wonderful tools, and and here, I mean, honestly, I guess as an author, I'm asking you to give me some space in your head by you know taking three hours and reading or listening to my book, and like, where's that space going to come from? Like, is that three hours less sleep you're going to get? You you have to have space, and so if I'm asking for space, let me let me try to justify it by explaining this: the person I wrote the book for is a certain person, and I had her in mind when I wrote the thing. She's incredibly competent. But every time she encounters a new problem that has not been solved by mankind or by anyone she knows, she hesitates. She quits. She disqualifies herself because she says, oh, well, people can't do that. You know, they can't start a, you know, top 10 Apple podcast and keep a full time job like whatever, like whatever that thing is. And I looked at her and I was like, how many millions of people are disqualifying themselves just like my friend did? And by the way, just like I used to do where... You have the potential to solve the problem, but that doesn't mean you get to copy the solution. It just means that you have this potential. So don't sit on the sidelines. So the reason I wrote the book and the reason I'm asking people to give give this time to this thing is to understand when you are disqualifying yourself. Because right now we have so many problems in the world that – it can't just be up to a small handful of elite superheroes to solve it. Like every person has the potential to do it. I mean, look, I'm a guy who's basically a glass blower. No payments experience. Look at Square. I mean, it worked. Jack and I, zero experience. Doesn't matter. Like you 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 run this formula the right way, you don't need to be an expert because there are no experts. But you do need to be prepared to live in a world where you don't have expertise. And that's a different thing. And that's what I've tried to prepare people with.
0: I love that. That's so inspiring and motivating. Jim, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: So I, uh, I again, I'm not on social media. Uh, so don't, I mean, you could follow me. I guess it'd be flattering to my marketing guys, but uh, their <laughs> marketing team, actually, it's not guys. It's my marketing team is all female. Like everybody who works on my team. I have a 100% female team. I shouldn't use the word guys, sorry. But- don't follow me on, on, on social media. I do have a website, jimmckelvey.com. If you go to jimmckelvey.com, I will give you a free copy of the graphic novel because actually I did produce the book as, as a graphic novel as well. And I'll just oh, give awesome. it to you for free. So you don't have to buy the book. It's not the whole book. It's just chapter nine, but it's a great story. And there's a, there's a murder. There's a-
0: Oh, that looks really cool.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a city burning down. Yeah, I mean, get get the graphic novel. I'll put that it's, in my uh, show
0: notes. so Everybody has a link.
1: Yeah, I mean- it's good It's good stuff, so that's at jimmkelvey
0: very cool. well, thank you so much, Jim. I think this was an awesome conversation
1: How, what what fun and good luck to you and i'm I'm terribly terribly sorry to hear about your dad. I mean, I know what oh, that's like, thank you because I was like parents too, so yeah yeah
0: it it stinks, but you know life goes on and just gonna keep on going up and up, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I mean but we're in my office right now, so like that's the photo of my dad
0: oh. That's so nice. Yeah, he
1: di- he died uh, s- seven months ago.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, still getting over. That's recent too, yeah.
1: Yeah, I know it's like, yeah. good luck to you. Thank
0: you so much, Jim. Have a great day.
1: Thanks, bye-bye.